people always say, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And I started asking myself, what would I do and love every day, even if I were failing? Because I can guarantee that things are going to be hard. So let me do something that is worth that struggle. All right, everybody, welcome back. We're here for another episode of Comeback Stories. And today's guest, Tom Bilyeu. Wow, man, what an honor to have you here. I'm excited to be here, man. Yeah, well, just a little quick intro for those that maybe don't know you. Tom is the founder of Quest Nutrition, the creator of Quest Bars. And I know that company. From hearing your story, you turned it into a billion-dollar company within five years, which is pretty pretty mind-blowing. You've got your show called Impact Theory. You've got Relationship Theory. And I know for a fact, because I've witnessed this, you are by far one of the best public speakers motivational speakers, whatever you want to call it, that I've ever witnessed. You truly brought the fire. You blow my mind with your drive and with your fire and with your willingness to always be learning and growing in all areas of your life. So, dude, it's an absolute gift and an honor and a blessing to have you here. Thank you, guys. I mean, that's obviously an extraordinarily kind welcome, and I appreciate it very much. We dive right into it. We want to know what was your life like growing up? My life growing up was, I'm sure you're familiar with David Foster Wallace's idea of this is water. And it was, uh, I grew up in sort of teetering on rural Tacoma, Washington. And where I lived, you know, my neighbors had cows and horses and stuff like that. But it wasn't like I was growing up on a farm. It was very much not that. But, you know, I used to ride a motorcycle made from a lawnmower engine around the house the easiest way to sum up my life was I teetered between blue collar and white collar. So my dad at one point was, um, he didn't have a job. And so, you know, he'd always worked and it was great. And he had a a white collar job and then he was suddenly a mechanic. And so that was interesting because during that period, you know, we didn't have as much money as a family. He was happy. And so it was a really interesting thing that planted a seed in my mind. So anyway, I grew up thinking, you know, my life was completely normal, that everybody has sort of a dirt track around their house. But I grew up frustrated that I couldn't have all the things that I wanted. Now, I used to think I grew up poor, but now that I've actually seen poverty, I very much did not grow up poor. I want to make that abundantly clear. But, you know, as a frustrated kid in Tacoma, I had to work. If I wanted to buy something, I had to work for it. So like I wanted a Nintendo. I asked for it for every birthday and every Christmas, thinking for sure, like my parents were one day going to get it for me. And they said, no, if you want it, you have to buy it. So at 12 years old, I worked in a door factory and earned enough money at, I think I was making, people are going to think I'm making this up, but I assure you I'm not. I think it was either $2.10 an hour or $2.15 an hour. So, you know, as a 12 year old kid making that little money takes a very long time to get to, you know, whatever the $150 that I needed to buy my Nintendo. So it was awesome. My parents were amazing. And I'm beyond grateful to them uh, for both all the good stuff they gave me. My mom was really hardcore, which I needed desperately. I was diagnosed with ADHD, but she refused to have me medicated, which I'm so grateful for. But it meant that she had to have an iron will. So you put a few things together. One, I'm frustrated because I can't have all the things that I want. I'm forced to work for the things that I wanted. The only jobs I had until I left for college were blue collar, like 
at one point I was working in a paint factory and I used to have to, you know, wear a gas mask and get in with industrial solvents. You had to climb inside these big ass tanks and clean them out. And my parents made me have a job every summer. And then my senior year, I worked at a gun range, which anybody that knows me, that is not what one would expect. And a lot of addiction problems in my extended family, which meant that I didn't touch alcohol or drugs at all because I just saw what it did. So I didn't have my first drink until I was 26. So yeah, I feel like I'm doing a terrible job of explaining my childhood, but it was awesome. And it cultivated me into being the person that I am today by developing a just unbreakable work ethic, recognizing that I need to work for the things that I want and hating that other people got to tell me what to do. And so I made myself two promises when I was a kid. One, I did not keep and one I have kept in spades. The one that I didn't keep was I promised that I would never again do anything that made me nervous because I have high anxiety. And as a kid, I just thought, oh, well, when I'm an adult, I never have to do anything that makes me nervous again. This would be amazing. And I've thrown myself into the deep end over and over and over in my life. And then the other was that I would never let people tell me what to do. And that one, I've actually done a, a good job. So that real problem with authority has helped me as an entrepreneur. That's for sure. I actually think you did a great job explaining your upbringing and it makes a lot of sense for who you are today and how you show up in the world. Going back, can you think about like an early memory of pain that you had? Um, that's a good question. The So here is a recent exploration that I've been doing in my life because I don't have literally any sort of painful memories from my childhood. Not like I mean, sure, there were girls that I liked that didn't like me back. You know, there's um, doing badly in school or something like that. Sure. But nothing that like I've held on to that's like really troubling. But I am really curious to know why I'm so driven. Because so often when you see the kind of drive that I have, that it's married to a wound of some kind. And, you know, the frustrations that I had over not being able to buy everything that I wanted, I never went hungry or anything like that. So it's not like I had trauma around it. But I was concerned when I was really young that my dad, who was ultra into cars, like imagine, and I'm sort of by nature very empathetic. So my dad always wanted uh, a boy. He gets a boy. My dad loves cars. His son's going to work with him on cars. And I couldn't have hated it anymore if I tried. And so, you know, here's having a kid. I don't know if you guys have kids, but I don't because I recognize how much work they are and they are worth the effort because, you know, the bonding and the love. And, you know, so I really felt bad for my dad that I hated his greatest passion. And so when I was 11, I was very concerned that my dad didn't love me because I didn't like working on cars, which of course wasn't true. And he went out of his way to show me that that wasn't true. But that was like my deep fear. And so I wonder sometimes if like, did that subconsciously plan itself that like I needed to succeed? I don't know. It doesn't feel like that. If I'm really honest, like it's a light energy for me when I pursue and go hard and all of that. Um, but you asked a question about pain. So I'm trying, man. But you know, I don't have a lot of like my mom was hardcore with me. One of my favorite stories about my mom which will give you an idea. But unfortunately, again, it's not going to be negative, but it shaped me very much. My friend came to school and said, yo, my mom tried to slap me and I blocked her and she broke down crying. And I know she's never going to slap me again. Now, where I grew up, like just getting spanked and slapped was 
like I'll, I will say I earned every one that I got, but I know today that's like hyper frowned on. So anyway, my mom would use that when I would get particularly out of hand. And my friend told me that and I thought, okay, this is going to be amazing. The next time my mom goes to slap me, I'm going to block that. And that's going to be it. She's going to know who's the boss. And I remember where we were standing and I was pushing, 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 pushing. And she finally goes to slap me. Boom, I block it. And I'm like, I did it. Here we go. And then she comes with the other hand. I blocked that. And I was like, I got it. She hit me with the third one. And legitimately in that moment, I was just like, mom, you were tailor-made to be my mother. So she is relentless and made sure that, you know, I stayed in line. And yeah, I I was just literally like two days ago telling her that she is my hero. She was tailor-made to be my mother and I couldn't be more grateful. So, um, that's about as close as I'm going to get you to, to pain, I'm afraid. Well, I remember I'm fascinated by one piece in your story where you talk about how a week after you left for college that your dad left your mom and you had talked about witnessing, or maybe not at the time, but taking a step back, realizing you were seeing a, a lifeless marriage. And for me, like when I know and witness you show up and how you show up for Lisa and show up in the world, to me, that could be. A big reason no, why interesting. you are who you are. So, well, now let's talk about that. So one, if we get into my adult life, now I've got all kinds of pain for you. It's my childhood, on the other hand, was different. But I used to have a recurring nightmare from the time I was about 14. I had a recurring nightmare about being trapped in a loveless marriage. And I could not, for the life of me, figure out, I only had two recurring dreams. One, I'm in a barn and an owl is swooping down on me. And as it swoops down, I become the owl. No idea, but I had that dream a lot as a kid. The other one was being trapped in a loveless marriage. And now, of course, looking back once my dad left, then it was like, oh my God, like I was picking up subconsciously on the fact that there was something there, but they were flawless about never showing that. So that's why it was never, you know, an explosive marriage. I was never worried about that, but I could obviously pick up on that there was distance between them but never consciously, which is super weird. Uh, so anyway, had that dream. My dad leaves, pieces start to click, like, oh my God. So that made me very hardcore about, okay, I'm not afraid of, you know, a cruel relationship or anything like that. My parents were never like that. I've, you know, never seen that up close. I'm very grateful to say, but that like, that just that distance that gets between you. And so I didn't, I don't understand people that stay in relationships that are, devoid of a sufficient amount of joy and support to be worth the sacrifice because relationships are a sacrifice. So yeah, that was, again, it never, it was a difficult time when my dad left just because I had just left and my mom was obviously going through a brutally hard time and it was financially difficult. But even now, like I don't hold on to negative stuff like that because I have a belief that you should only do and believe that which moves you towards your goals. And while there were, like when it first happened, I was really upset with my dad because I was not aware enough of the world to understand that if you're not having fun in a marriage and you don't have the skills to make it thrive, then that would suck. And so being on either side of that equation was no fun. And so, you know, as I got older, that just became clear. And so I have a very good relationship with both of my parents, but it is, yeah, that that ended up being a gift for me to know what I didn't want. Who would you say was your first real teacher? Ooh, Stephen King. 
And how come him? He taught me that I like to read. And when I think about one, when I was discovering that I like to read, I didn't know that I would ever want to become a writer or a filmmaker, which ended up the whole reason that we built Quest was I was trying to generate enough wealth that I could build my own film studio. And so here we are today. That's what impact theory is. Most people don't even realize that the, the whole reason that impact theory exists is to beat Disney at its own game, but in a 21st century context. So, you know, if you're going to make a studio today, you'd be digital first, right? You'd dominate YouTube. You'd figure out how to make content there. You'd know how to use influence to open doors. I mean, it's like the playbook that I laid out for my team now almost seven years ago, and it's actually working. It's crazy. So that whole thing, like I didn't know that was going to be my thing, but he opened my eye. I had told my parents I hated reading. And my dad said, look, he'd been bugging me just something about him knew if he could get me to read that my life would be better. So he said, look, you know, try this book, try that book. And I, I hated them all. And then he said, okay, I have one more book for you to try. If you try this and you don't like it, I'll never bug you again. And uh, he gave me a copy of The Gunslinger, which is in Stephen King's Dark Tower series. And I still, to this day, remember the first sentence. And I remember the first sentence, even though there was probably 20 years between when I read it the first time and when I reread it again. And in that 20 years, I still had it memorized. I read it one time and it just hit my soul that hard. And that ended up changing my life forever because reading has been the closest thing I can give you to what has led to my success is just finally accepting that I'm completely average in every way. I'm not above average in intelligence or... Uh, anything by nature, but I read voraciously. And that knowledge stacks. And so if you're reading, I average, I track it now, I average two and a half hours a day, every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year of learning. So it's not always reading, it could be a YouTube video or whatever, but learning. And he was the one that unlocked that slot for me. I've tried so desperately to get him on the show to interview him, and he just won't go for it. Man, what I take from that is I know that you learned a lot from your childhood and there's a lot of gifts that you can take from that going forward. And I love the quote about doing things that and believing in the things that which will help you, you know, succeed. But there are times in all of our lives where, you know, we reach a point where we don't do or believe those things. And on comeback stories, we like to bridge the gap. Whereas, you know, the common denominator between people that make a billion dollars or somebody that makes a thousand dollars a year is we all face adversity. And we have to find a way to attack that and overcome. So what would you say was something that you would consider like the lowest point in your life where the odds were stacked against you and it was adversity? You were worried or hopeless about you know what was to come in your life? Yeah. So my childhood was great. I couldn't have asked for anything more. My early 20s were a devastating shit show. And that was the darkest period of my life. I was sliding towards depression. So I went to film school. I got in which is its own sort of cool story. And then I thought I would get, you know, basically you have an opportunity so different now, like kids are not even going to understand what it used to be like. But when I graduated from film school, there's no YouTube, there's no phones with cameras on them. Like if you wanted to make a no budget film, it was a hundred thousand dollars, not coming from money. Not only did I not have a hundred thousand dollars, I never met anyone that had a hundred thousand dollars. I wouldn't have even known like who to go talk to. So I work really hard in film school. I become one of only four people selected to direct a senior thesis film. The college then gives you a budget to make it. So I was like, this is my one shot. Here we go. And I made that senior thesis film and it was a piece of trash. 
And I realized that I didn't have talent as a filmmaker. The problem was, so imagine your entire life is leading towards this moment, right? I've been pursuing film at that point for probably, I don't know, seven years. So seven years when you're 21 is like a third of your life. So a third of my life, roughly half of my sort of life that I can remember, I've been pursuing this thing. And I realized at the last minute, I don't have talent and now no way to make my dreams come true. So now how do I reconcile that I have this insane ambition and no way to make it come true? And so I enter like a really gnarly phase. I'm working these dead end jobs. I do not feel smart and I pride myself on being smart. So I keep putting myself in smaller and smaller rooms to be the smartest person in the room. But when you're average, to be the smartest person in the room, you're going to do some below average rooms. So at one point I was selling video games, retail, um, just the guy behind the counter selling you video games. And that was after I got my degree. So I'm a college graduate with college debt, selling video games, right? So it's like, it always makes me sad when people look at me, the after picture, and think, well, sure, it's easy if you're Tom, but like, what about me, right? I'm just some average person working behind the makeup counter at Macy's or whatever. And I'm like, I wasn't even working at Macy's. I was like in some dodgy little off-brand store. I wasn't even at GameStop. I was at like some off-brand store in the Deep Valley here in Los Angeles, right? Thinking that my life was over. Like, where the hell do I go from here? And so flash forward, I end up falling in love and I'm still ambitious, but I'm not really doing anything to make my ambitions come true. I go to ask for my wife's um, father for his blessing to marry his daughter. And he says, no. And I was just like, oh God. And the reason he didn't want me to marry his daughter is he had accurately identified that I did not have the drive to see my ambitions through. And because I did not have that drive, that I was going to make his daughter poor. And I always tell people, he's always been very kind to me, but he did not misidentify me. My own mom thought I was going to fail when I left for college. My best friend thought I was going to marshmallow my way through life. I was lost, scared, frustrated, hopeless. I just, I had no idea how to make anything work in my life. So when my father-in-law said that, it was like a real gut check. And so that was the period of my life where I was laying in bed because I didn't have a job. My girlfriend, now wife, was the only one working. And so imagine me sleeping in my soon-to-be mother-in-law's house. My girlfriend is going off to work to make some money for us. And I'm laying in bed every day, four to five hours a day, thinking about my father-in-law saying, well, are you really going to be successful? Because you keep saying you're going to be successful, but I'm not so sure. And so finally, I realized this is a really dark place that I'm living in and I need to start taking steps. Now, of course, it wasn't like some lightning rod moments and one day I was troubled and the next day I had to figure it out. It was super clumsy, really awkward, but that shame got me moving. And so this is where I get controversial, I guess, because I think that shame can be incredibly powerful. You don't want to let it break you, right? Do and believe that which moves you towards your goals. So you can't sit there all day thinking about what a loser you are. But if you're acting like a loser, being honest and saying, this is not going to take me where I want to go, like actually stopping for a second and saying, am I doing the things I would need to do to achieve my goals? And for me, the answer was no. So I started making changes. And the first one, and this rule is a rule in my life to this day, it transformed my life, was I was going to get out of bed in 10 minutes or less, no matter what. That changed everything. And that seems so dumb. 
but I still fight with it to this day. Literally every day of my life, I think, well, today there's this reason why you can stay in bed. It's crazy. For whatever reason, I wake up in like an emotionally weak state and I have to like cobble, remind myself who I am, cobble that mindset together just to get out of bed. So before I had the skills that I have now, it was just terrifying because I was just laying in bed all day and think, no, today I'm going to do something. And then I wouldn't. It's really shameful. It was a really gnarly period. So anyway, getting out of that was a huge first step, but then I was still super clumsy for years and, you know, just trying to put it together. Yeah, absolutely. What I hear from that is when we're faced with these situations, these circumstances, we have to first accept it and take ownership of where we're at and not blame other people. Realize that we have the power uh, to change and create whatever we want from that. I want to ask you next, was there a, a certain narrative that was in your mind, like a story that you were telling yourself? Well, the thing that Donnie always tells me, is not about the greatest story that you tell is the story that you tell yourself. It's the only one that matters. Was there a story that you had to stop telling and a new one that you had to start telling? What, what was that like for you? So again, I wish yes is the answer, but I wish it had been like, oh, hey, you're telling yourself this narrative. You need to stop telling yourself, right? It was not that clear. It was just sort of a constant state of panic that I would never become the person that I dreamed I would become when I was a kid. When I was a kid, when I thought about my future, I would get so excited. Because I was like, I'm going to be the next Steven Spielberg. This is going to be amazing. I'm going to be rich. This is going to be fantastic. And then it was like, I'm broke. I can't pay my bills. And I have no way of making my dreams come true. So all of that weight, you know, what they call the quarter life crisis at 25 was just like caving in on me and realizing that, okay, wait a second. I need to behave differently. And that was my end to the narrative, right? And I began reading about the brain like crazy. And so my first narrative shift was around brain plasticity. And so realizing that, whoa, 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 just like, it's okay to admit, because the narrative I was telling myself was that I wasn't smart enough to succeed the way that I wanted to. And I really like, I lamented. And I mean that word with all the sort of heavy connotations that it has. There's this great movie called Amadeus. One of the characters in there is based on a real guy who is a contemporary of Mozart lamented to God saying, why did you make me just talented enough to recognize that I'll never be as good as Mozart? You could have made me like everybody else, just untalented. And therefore I could just love Mozart and appreciate how good his music was, but you didn't. You cursed me to be just good enough to recognize that I'll never be great. And that I literally called myself because that character's name is Solieri. I called myself Solieri. I was like, that's me. Oh my God. Like that's the guy who understands lamenting to God, why did you make me just smart enough to recognize I'll never be smart enough to be great? Like make me dumb, right? Ignorance is bliss or make me brilliant, but don't leave me in this like average place where I can recognize that I'll never be able to make my dreams come true. And so I just thought, okay, hold on, hold on. If I keep saying that, I can see how it's influencing my behavior. I need to stop. So right now I need to, because of brain plasticity, I need to embrace the word yet. I'm not smart enough yet, which I'll now change to educated, right? I'm not educated enough yet. I don't know how to do this yet, but I can figure it out. And so that was life-changing. Just really buying into the concept of brain plasticity, which I now call the only belief that matters. Because if you believe that, hey, if I apply energy into practicing this skill, 
I will get better at it. It's not a question. Like every human being that's above an IQ of 83, the US government will tell you if you have an IQ below 83 that you're screwed. So fine. You have to meet minimum requirements. But I promise you anybody listening to this podcast has an IQ way over 83. So if you meet that minimum requirement, now it's just a, a question of how much time and energy are you putting into developing your skill set? And that freed me from that narrative. Mm. And, you know, I heard you talking about that a couple of years ago in your obsession with neuroplasticity. And as a mindfulness yoga meditation teacher myself, I noticed, and it could have been even you that really kind of triggered it in me is like I was teaching this but not necessarily living it in every way. And I would remember getting stuck in traffic and getting all jammed up and like someone cuts me off and I'm like ready to fight the person. But yet I'm just pulling out of a yoga class that I just taught and, you know, teaching all this Zen and being all blissful. But what I realized was I need to take more pride in this practice. And yeah, the neurons that wire together, fire together, that whole idea. And you really nudged me into more action to research it. And I know your obsession with, with the book Mindset. And I believe, you know, just hearing your story, and I know the analogy I give sometimes when I do this like future pacing exercise with my coaching clients is this like the Oprah analogy. Oprah was, both her parents left her. She was raped by her uncles and her mom's boyfriend, right? And she went one path and yet her next door neighbor, all that same stuff happened, lots of trauma, growing up in a rough neighborhood and she's living on the streets, strung out on drugs, right? So it's like the thoughts, all it was the belief system that she created that allowed her to get to where she is and the same for her, ne her next door neighbor. So I, I'm just fascinated by that and the subconscious and how the subconscious mind is 30,000 times more powerful than the conscious mind. And being able to go there. And I talk about it a lot even with lying in bed those last 10 minutes where we're all going to lie there for a couple minutes and most people are worrying or worrying about tomorrow or worrying about am I ever going to find love? Am I going to get out of this job? Instead of like going there and attaching the emotion and, and, and really feeling it so that you're pre-programming the subconscious for the next eight hours. So I know I kind of went on a rant there, but I think you really inspired me to dive deeper and, and practice what I preach a little bit more. No, I mean, I love that. Trust me, if, if that ends up being my legacy, that I've got more people thinking about the brain, I will be a very happy camper. Hmm. Gratitude changes the way we see the world. Gratitude changes our brain and our heart. What are you most grateful for today? My wife, every day, every day. I mean, beyond my health, like you don't want to take that for granted, but uh, that woman, I just cannot stress enough. Like relationships are compromised. You're going to make a lot of sacrifices to be in them. But God, if you get them right, like there's just nothing else. Like it is so clear to me that every, my frame of reference is so created by the dynamic that she and I have that winning feels good because, you know, we're winning together or that I can do something that impresses her, like, which is, you know, always like the juice, you know? Um, just that, like really pair bonding with somebody over the long run. And I am very fortunate that I learned very early that the greatest gift that life has to offer is a shared experience. And there's, I forget who said it, it's ancient wisdom, I'm sure, but a pleasure shared is a pleasure doubled. And I just love that. And so, um, you know, Lisa and I are running the experiment of what happens if 
through everything. You just know that my relationship with that person is my everything. It isn't the success. It isn't the business. It isn't my identity as a CEO. Like the only thing I'm unwilling to trade is my marriage. And that has brought me no shortage of joy. Yeah. I mean, wow. That's something that I'm sure everyone that's listening to would like to experience. Another thing I know that you're probably grateful for is living a life of impact. I know that that's something that you embody with all the content that you're putting out. But I feel like in today's age, I know a lot of people want to try to live an impressive life. I know I've heard you uh, on multiple shows talking about how you wanted to be rich. Now you were telling people you're going to be rich and you're going to do things and achieve these positions and whatnot. I don't think people can necessarily differentiate between the two. They want the list of things, the resume to be like, yo, look at me. Like these are the things that I can do, but not necessarily an impact where those things and that list that they accumulate turns into changing lives around them, changing communities around them. Can you pinpoint a time where, you know, you had immense success, but you wanted to turn and change that into impact like that success just wasn't enough for you? Oh, yes. Yeah. So my, so I'm a, a child of the eighties and, you know, growing up in sort of just the urban side of rural Tacoma, every movie of my childhood was set in like upper class Chicago or Los Angeles. And so I just knew that's what I want. Like, I want that. I want access to cool things, beautiful houses, fast cars. Um, and I really sincerely pursued it. Like I went hard for almost a decade. You know, when I met my wife, when the, the whole pitch to my father-in-law, that was all about getting rich. And all of my ambition was tied up and I'm going to get rich. I'm going to get rich. That Those were the actual words I was using. And so I pursued that for probably about eight and a half years. And I was worth about $2 million on paper. Now there's a big difference between paper money and bank money, which people don't seem to fully understand. So it's not like my lifestyle was not that of a multimillionaire, but I had a lot like of equity. So it, you know, here I have this thing that I said I've been fighting for and I hate my life. And so the grand irony of living the cliche of money can't buy happiness when you've heard it a bazillion times growing up. It's not like I was unfamiliar. It's not like I was like, oh my God, why didn't somebody tell me? It was like everybody in the world tried to tell me and will continue to try to tell everybody else that money can't buy happiness. But what they don't do is slot in that one, money is powerful, powerful, and people will always chase it. And so to acknowledge that, right, that money is extraordinarily powerful, which is why people chase it, but money cannot change how you feel about yourself, which is what you think it's going to do. You think the big house, the car, the whatever is going to change how you feel about yourself. And it can't, unfortunately. It would actually have made my life a lot easier if it could, but it can't. And so what I realized was, oh shit, the game that we're playing is a game of neurochemistry, right? Feeling alive. That became my obsession. So I'm a multimillionaire on paper and I hate my life. So I'm like, okay, well then money clearly is not the answer because I was also making more money than I'd ever made. So I have more cash and I'm technically rich on paper and I hate my life. So it's like, okay, cool. Well, I now I'm like way into brain science. I have a growth mindset. So I'm able to look at the picture and go, oh, there's a solution here. But what is it? And once I went, okay, money didn't do for me what I thought it would do. It's not making me feel a way that I liked feeling. And then that made me go, is this really all just a game of how you feel? 
And I was like, actually, yes. Because one, how many billionaires have to commit suicide before you go, oh shit, that seems like the wrong way to play this game called life. So if we know, and I, I play a game called the, the brain in a vat thought experiment. What if you were a brain in a vat? Which by the way, you actually are. Because we're limited time, I won't go into the whole thing. But like your brain is encased in your skull and light never touches your brain. Sound waves never touch your brain. You're living in a virtual environment created by your brain. Okay, fair enough. Cool. Now, if that's true, then I know the only thing that's actually real is the way that I feel. So should I not steer by the way that I feel? Now, I didn't have the words at the time that I sort of have this breakthrough. I just start getting obsessed with this idea of I want to do things that make me feel alive. Okay, so I tell my wife, hey, I know I promised to make you rich. I need to back up. I need to go do something that makes me feel alive. And then hopefully from that, I'll be able to leverage, you know, to get a big win. But I had realized by that point that the struggle is guaranteed, the success is not. And so I felt like I had been asking the wrong question. People always say, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And I started asking myself, what would I do and love every day, even if I were failing? Because I can guarantee that things are going to be hard. So let me do something that is worth that struggle, where it's like, the harder I'm fighting, the better I feel, the more fulfilled I am, like this is rad. So now, again, back then I didn't have this language, but now I would say it's the physics of being human. So the brain over millions of years of evolution is some kind of way, right? It just is. There are just certain things that are true about humans. Like one, we seek, sat- we seek status. So that's part of the reasons people chase money. And it actually works. It actually will make you feel different when people look at you different, right? So if you buy the big house or the car, people looking at that car changes your status. That actually makes you feel different. Now, it doesn't touch how you feel about yourself. actually creates this whole fragile thing. But nonetheless, you see that it does have real-world import. So knowing that there are just certain things that are true about the brain you can begin to steer by it. So one of the things that is true, we are a social creature. If you don't contribute to the group, you will, whether you want to or not, feel badly about yourself. You won't feel connected. You won't feel uplifted. You won't feel fulfillment. So fulfillment has a formula. It goes exactly like this. Work really hard. It has to be hard. There's another part of our brain that insists that you have earned what you have. I don't know why. Probably to compel you to go out and hunt or forage to overcome difficult things. Nature goes, cool, you're gonna have to do it anyway to survive. I'm gonna make it feel like a reward. So you do hard shit, makes you feel better about yourself. So you're gonna work hard to develop a set of skills that are unique to you. You're not one of everybody. They're unique to you based on something that you care about, you find it interesting. Then you're gonna leverage that skill set to serve not only yourself, because you need to also serve yourself, but not only yourself, but other people. So that's physics, man. Like, I don't care. Across cultures, doesn't matter. The human mind is shaped such that you had to work hard to get a set of skills that matter to you that allow you to serve yourself and others. If it only serves others, it won't work. If it only serves yourself, it won't work. So all of this like realization as I'm sitting there going, why isn't this working, right? Not just going, okay, well, I'll do the opposite of money because it wasn't that. I, I am wildly ambitious. and. Money is the great facilitator. If you have a dream, that dream becomes infinitely easier if you have access to resources. So I'm unabashed about wealth creation. But I know to feel the way that I want to feel about myself, which by the way is the punchline of life, okay? It's not about success, not about fame, not about notoriety, none of that. It is entirely about 
how do you feel about yourself when you're by yourself? That's it. And if you feel good about who you are when you're by yourself, people can try to hate on you. You'll bounce back very quickly because you're like, these are the things I value and I live in accordance with that. Now, if you get off of that and you lack integrity, then people can get at you because you're not feeling good about yourself when you're by yourself. So anyway, you line that shit up and now all of a sudden, hey, I'm doing something every day that gives me energy. So whether I win or lose doesn't matter. Like this is the fight I want to be in. And then if the success comes, amazing, because you can facilitate, you know, even grander dreams, but not everybody wants to chase that. Um, I'll stop there because I'm starting to drift from the initial question, but hopefully that that answers it. You, you nailed it. And I've, I've heard you talk about this before also about the difference between success and, and value. And I think you're looking at, at two guys here who both come from the world of addiction. Both of us have similar stories. Both of us overdosed and almost didn't make it here. And now we're public about our sobriety. Some people who go to Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever anonymous, they choose to stay anonymous. And we chose not to. And I'll just speak for him and watching Darren. It doesn't matter. Last year, broke the Raiders reception record, made the Pro Bowl. I can tell you that matters to him, but that's not what really matters to him. It's about value and it's about impact. And we talk every week during the season and we we dissect the week and very little to do about football other than our internal response to some of the stuff that happens some of the things that maybe we get sucked into that are not within our control. It's more of the mental part of it. But I just know everything to summarize what you were saying, it's success versus value or, or impact. And it's so cool that we come from this world of addiction and our messy passes taught us about service, which is the greatest hack of life. Of, and the greatest, easiest way to get out of self-pity is to go help somebody else. And it's the antidote of the core of our disease, which is selfishness and self-centeredness, but we can kind of turn it. And now our self, our selflessness becomes our selfishness, which is like, it's just so cool, man. I mean, I sit here just talking to you and sitting next to him and thinking about like our messy past brought us together and brought us talking to you. So I'm just uh, oozing with gratitude, my brother. No, that's cool, man. That's a great message for people. I'm really into the idea that it doesn't matter who you are today. It only matters who you want to become and the price you're willing to pay to get there. So, you know, Lisa and I asked ourselves when we were a quest if that was real or if that was just rhetoric. And we're like, no, it's real. And so we ended up putting, because, you know, we were in Compton at the time because we're in manufacturing. So it's like, we put the word out on the street that even if you had a criminal past that we would still consider you for employment. And we found some of the most extraordinary people that had gnarly past, but it's like, they were willing to bust ass to become somebody that they could be proud of. And now being surrounded by people that are willing to bust ass to become somebody they're proud of, that's my people, right? And so there's a lot of energy in that. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a cool vibe to be around. Um, I want to speak to that drive that, you know, speaks for itself when we see what you do and what you embody. I know there are a lot of people that they want the results of things, but I don't think they necessarily want the process of it. And trying to make that practical for people is a difficult thing. Is there any things you can remember from the beginning stage of you developing that drive that you could help other people with along that journey? Because they're like, okay, yeah, work hard. I know what that is. But it's like, how do they stay committed? How do I continue to 
you know, work towards this every day. Is there anything that you could give anybody that's listening that wants to figure that out? I do. I've got the process. I'll walk them through it. Here's the bad news. Uh, you can't want it for them. So ultimately, like you can give them all the information and I'm literally going to give them a step-by-step instruction manual for how to do it, but most people still won't do it. So, but here's the process. You have to understand everything in life is a process. So love is a process. People don't want to think that. They want to think it's magical, but you go on dates, you get to know the person. That's the process. You spend time with them. You ask questions, you connect, you touch, you ultimately have sex. You know, you literally join. It's like you go through this process to get to love. And then there's an even more involved process to maintain love, right? So if even love, the sort of mystical, the most magical of all the things that we're going to experience is a process, then you can imagine that desire itself is a process. Now, the reality is, and as an athlete, you know this, some people just don't want it badly enough. And if you read Tim Grover's book, Relentless, he talks about like, I can't remember if he calls it the sickness. I think he does. And like some people just for whatever reason, it is a compulsion. They have to succeed. And that's my thing. I have a deep sickness. I have to matter. I, I, I don't know why. It doesn't feel like a dark thing for me. It feels like wonderful and bright and beautiful, but it's a like obsession. It's a compulsion. I have to do it. So the thought of retiring and never doing any, I couldn't do it. Like I need to be plugged in. I need to matter. So because I have that want, I fan those flames, right? I turn it from a glowing ember into a raging inferno. So it started as, you know, I feel better when I matter. And I'm like, I can leverage that. So the point is to find something that you find interesting. That's going to be the thing we're going to focus on. Nothing is going to feel like your life's purpose. That's where people disconnect. They think they were born with something. You weren't born with anything, right? Things that maybe are slightly more interesting than other things. So we're going to do a lot of stuff. We're going to find the few that we get a little bit more energy out of than it takes from us. Like, oh, that was kind of fun. Oh, I enjoyed that. That piques my interest. Cool. That's the first sign. Don't expect it to feel like, oh my God, I'm saving the world or I was born to do this. doesn't work like that. So you found the thing that's interesting. You engage with that thing. If the more you engage with it, the more you want to engage with it, then that's going to be the one that we pursue. Now, if you find that you always love the beginning, but then you get bored and you constantly want to disconnect, I'd say if you've done that more than three times, this is now, you just don't want to be resilient. You don't want to push through hard things. Maybe you're surprised that even a passion comes with overhead, right? The boring stuff. I've often said that boredom kills more entrepreneurs than fear or failure ever will. It's just about, you get in there and you're like, God, this is hard. This is boring. I don't know if I want to keep doing this. So it's like, you have to, pride yourself on the resilience, right? That I'm the type of person that pushes through perseverance. Okay, cool. Then now we've found the thing that we're interested in. We engage with it. We find the one that we're getting enough energy out of that we're willing to make the demand of ourselves that we keep pushing through something. Now we keep pushing through. We fan the flames of that desire by telling ourselves and other people in what I call an embodied way, okay? Your brain justifies the level of your reaction. So, well, I'll do it right now. So I am building a studio and the idea behind the studio is that I don't want your zip code to be the number one predictor of your future success, which right now in America, certainly in many places in the world, your zip code is the number one predictor of your future success. And 
I don't want to live in that world. Okay. I'm going to say the exact same thing, but now I'm going to embody my excitement for it. Guys, this is actually true. I cannot believe this is true. But right now in America, your zip code is the number one predictor of your future success. That is something I will not abide. I will not live in a world where I'm not going all out every day with the things I love and care about to find a way to contribute to making sure that's not true. So the entire mission of my life is to make sure that nobody gets to the age of 15 without encountering a growth mindset. Same exact thing, but one way I'm not embodying it. And therefore my brain goes, oh, this isn't a big deal. The other way I'm embodying it. I'm letting myself get hyped up. Even if it's performative, by the way, in hyping myself up, my brain goes, oh shit, this must really matter. We're getting really agitated over this thing. And I want people to understand you're having a biological experience. So just like breathing from your diaphragm will lower your anxiety, whether you want it to or not, running will increase your VO2 max, whether you want it to or not, there are certain things that you can do to get that desire going. And one of them is to embody that feeling, to say it to yourself over and over and over. Repetition is extraordinarily powerful. Okay, you said earlier, neurons that fire together, wire together. Okay, well, I'm going to fire the sense of passion, feeling alive, energetic, to I'm going to make sure that nobody gets to the age of 15 without encountering a growth mindset. So now I say it's you. I say it's myself. I embody it with that energy. In the beginning, maybe it was performative, but I did it because I knew the physics of being human is such that the brain will justify whatever amplitude of reaction I have. So if I'm sedate about it, my brain goes, not a big deal. If I'm big about it, constantly pushing, then my brain goes, whoa, we must really care about this. And then six months in, to that process of repetition, you actually want that shit. Like you're actually on fire for it. Now, you just treated desire like a process. But in doing that, and I get it in the beginning, it feels really fucking weird. But if you push through that, now all of a sudden you really do want it. You get a neurochemical reward every time you think about what who you're fighting for, right? Pick a person, think of an individual person that you're fighting for. You think about them, you hype yourself up on that energy, you tell other people what you're fighting for, you tell yourself what you're fighting for, And now all of a sudden, you know, a few months into this, you feel something. Now, as you develop your skill set enough, because you felt excited about it, you kept pushing through, you feel something about it. You're getting skills. Your skills now let you serve not only yourself, but other people. Now you're in a self-reinforcing loop where the harder you work, the better you get, the better you get, the more you're able to serve yourself and other people. You get the physics of being human. The brain will reward you you will feel good about yourself, right? Surest way you guys said to pull yourself out of feeling sorry for yourself, go serve other people, right? So now imagine you just busted your ass on something you care about. You got a skill set. That skill has real utility in the real world. So now I've worked really hard to get good at something that matters. And now I'm a beast, right? Kobe Bryant's notion of booze don't block dunks. Now I can go be a fucking beast perform, outperform other people, and I'm helping people while I'm doing it. Now, if you really want to get freaked out, they did a study on mice. Now, which do you think a mouse would rather have? It has literally two buttons before it, and it can stimulate different regions of its brain. One region of its brain is uh, exactly analogous to courage, and the other region of its brain is exactly analogous to an orgasm. Which do you think it's going to go after? Bravery or orgasm? Orgasm. You would think, right? 
motherfuckers go for bravery every time. So we are, we are wired. If I, I think that it will translate to humans as well. It's obviously mice. So you never know. But my gut instinct is given that the brain regions they were stimulating have a correlate in the human mind. Like we're just wired for that. Like face your fears, get up, do something that matters, serve the tribe. And so when you tap into that, now all of a sudden, like, before, when you looked at other people that were succeeding at a high level, you're just like, oh man, can I really be bothered? And all of a sudden you walk that process for three to six months and it's like, people can't hold you back, but I can't make you do the process, right? So that's where it's like, I had to finally realize I can't want it for people. Even though I have enough belief in that process and enough desire to see people succeed that if I only could want it for them, I would, doesn't work. Well, I think you... you we talk about change, right? And and I've heard you even mention about like when you're in a dark place and you hear that other people can change, it gives us hope. So this is why we did the podcast. This is why we want people like you on our podcast, because sometimes just sharing our story, that's the cool thing about addiction is like my messy past can actually help someone and remind them that they're not alone. Because that's the big story we tell ourselves at rock bottom. That's what when someone is ready to make that unbearable or that decision to to end their life, the la- the story is nobody understands I'm alone. And now we can use that and, and give hope and and tell them that change is possible. And I hear some major transformation in your whole story, some major fire. Um, I know we only got a minute. We always end with the comeback story shout out. Who's that one person that you want to give that shout out to? I'm not sure that I'm answering the question in the way that you guys intended, but you know, for me, Lisa, having been with me through this whole thing, I did make her poor for years and years. And not only did she not complain, she helped me build an empire. And um, sharing that ride with her has been everything. I mean, it's just everything. Now, that's exactly where we're going. And that's who I thought you were going to say. And it's inspiring just to even watch your guys' love for each other. And most importantly, for me at least, your willingness to do the work because the work never stops, whether it's the work on ourselves uh, and the work in our relationship. So it's super inspiring. I know she's got an epic comeback story. If she ever wants to come on, we'd love to have her. But man, thank you so much for your time. It's I know it's valuable and it's just a blessing um, and an honor to be here. Where's the easiest place for people to find you and track you down? At Tom Bilyeu, YouTube is my primary place. So a YouTube forward slash Tom Bilyeu, that's the place. And then if anybody wants more of those processes, I teach Impact Theory University. People can sign up for that. I am literally as fast as I can giving away every secret that I have. Uh, if you can't afford it, we'll give it to you for free. Like this is just something that I want people to know. It changed everything about my life. Um, and so just trying to pay that forward. Thank you, man. Well, you've definitely made a huge impact on on our life and you've definitely changed mine in many ways. So to have you on here again, it's a blessing. I just want to acknowledge you for the man you are and how you show up in the world. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. This is what I represent. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, but every king's gonna get crowned. 